are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are talking about abuse of anabolic steroids. This is a fascinating topic. Anabolic steroids are typically not used for what we describe as the quintessential high, but other reinforcing reasons. And often we see this in combination with other substance use disorder or can lead to a substance use disorder. But it still can meet the criteria as a substance use disorder defined by continued use despite negative consequences and compulsive use. A little bit of history, and this is all coming from NIDA, which is a great resource. They have a good summary if you want to reference that. Testosterone was first synthesized in Germany. This was back in 1935 and was used used medically to treat depression. And I didn't know that, Paula. Had you heard that before? No, I I didn't. Not until I was doing research for this podcast. It really became famous. And this is where we started associating it with misuse and the anabolic steroids was in the 1954 Olympics. And the Russian weightlifters were given testosterone. In the 1980s is when anabolic steroid use began to extend into the general population. We didn't see this actually started to get some regulation until the 90s. They passed the Anabolic Steroid Act in 1990 in response to the increasing levels of illicit traffic in steroids. And it is when anabolic steroids were identified as a separate drug class. Then what we saw is, but in 2004, then there was the Anabolic Steroid Control Act. And that is a little bit different. This banned the -the over-the-counter steroid precursors. And this increased the penalties for making, selling, or possessing illegal steroid precursors and provided funds for preventative educational effort. Where a lot of this illicit substance use comes from is typically Mexico and some European nations where steroids are available without a prescription. And now with online sales, then they're then smuggled into the U.S., All right, Paula, do you want to go into some of the epidemiology? Sure. Yeah. So according to the NASDA study, about 0.5 of the U.S. population has used anabolic steroids, the majority of those users being male weightlifters. And we now include anabolic steroids into the category of IPEDs or image and performance enhancing drugs. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that all means. The study also said that about 1% of people ages 18 to 34 have used anabolic steroids, and about 22% of them start in adolescence. It's difficult to measure. Um, I don't know if this is surveyed. Well, I do know this is not surveyed very well. Most national surveys don't measure anabolic steroid steroid use or misuse. So I don't know if we really have a good idea of what the true true statistics are. The US, however, says that it's generally minimal in the teenage population, although I I don't know. I don't know about that because it seems like that's where a lot of it starts. Well, at least 
least 22% of it is what we know of. And in Britain, they think they said it's more like 25%. But um, in it general, definitely is underreported. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the surveys, they do say are, it's not being, the question just isn't being asked. So exactly. I wonder how much of that is just being missed. Yeah. I mean, even when you take a history, a good substance use history on an addiction patient, how many of us ask about anabolic steroid use? It's I found true. that when I started including it, I ask about it and it's almost pan positive in my male patients, especially the opioid users. I was like, man, I we've been missing this all the time because they don't offer it up as substance of their problematic substance, even though it really is. There's an interesting paper, um, a British paper from Chartau, Trends in Neuro- it's from the journal Trends in Neurology and Men's Health. And they say that in the UK, they also say that determining the prevalence of anabolic steroid use is challenging, but they think that it's a higher lifetime prevalence at about 3.3% with greater use in certain countries, developed countries like the UK. And they also said that up to 6.4% of men in the general population have used anabolic steroids and that 18.4% of male recreational athletes use anabolic steroids or have at some point. And that number seems far more likely to me. I mean, that's a big number, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see if we could break that down. There's also some interesting associations in terms of epidemiology with people who have a known substance use disorder and their rate of concurrent or subsequent anabolic steroid abuse. And there was one One study that was published in the Harm Reduction Journal, it's a British journal in 2014 by Kimmergaard et al. And they were monitoring needle and syringe programs, so syringe exchange programs, as otherwise known in our country. And they reported that up to 80% of the clients attending are using anabolic steroids at some point compared to less than 1% in the 1980s. That's a huge number. I guess we have to sort that out a little bit and figure out what the true number is. I think clinically, it's very much higher in certain groups. You know, these national surveys, like we said, are may not be capturing it all together. Why do people abuse? And that's kind of an interesting question. Some of the reported reasons is obviously look increases lean muscle mass, feel different, improves mood, increased focus, libido, faster recovery. And then what we often have thought of as improving performance, strength, and that's where we kind of see that use with athletes. And then there's also what we see in with our many of our addiction patients as well, is it has some of those, again, reinforcing effects. Use because of thought of side effects from some of their other substances use, for instance, their opiate or alcohol, which are known to lower their testosterone levels. They'll sometimes can be seeking prescriptions or using because of that. I mean, how often do you see that, Paula? Yeah, I think that's really common. And so I think that's definitely true in our population. And in general, people who are using anabolic steroids, there are some known associations with this cohort. Uh, They're known to have poor self-esteem they have higher rates of depression and anxiety and actually suicide, which is really unfortunate. They definitely are a group that suffer from body dysmorphia. See this in uh, men who have dysmorphic thoughts about how small their body is, right? True body dysmorphic disorder. And then also we see anabolic steroid use and also performance enhancing drug use in in sports that emphasize weight and shape. The ones we automatically think of like bodybuilding, weightlifting, 
wrestling even. And then there's other ones that are like CrossFit has had a really interesting run in with anabolic steroids. And I think that's ongoing and that's a whole nother topic. But then other very strength based sports like football, shot put, those athletes are more at risk for using these performance enhancing drugs, right? Because it's doping. It's a form of making yourself better with the work you're doing. Another association with folks who use anabolic steroids is having parents who emphasized weight. And also those people who have higher rates of substance use and eating disorders are more likely to use anabolic steroids. There's also an unfortunate association uh, that NIDA talks about in a study of 506 male users of anabolics and 771 male non-users of of anabolics, the users were much more likely than the non-users to report being sexually abused in the past. And the same thing with the female users, they were much more likely to have been raped in the past. In fact, they were found to be twice as likely to, to report the use of anabolic steroids versus women who had not suffered such sexual assault. That's I think that's interesting and unfortunate. So there's a, there's a wide variety of risk factors there, both associated with the people who are using and then the kinds of person who might be vulnerable to using. And I found this graph. I thought this was really interesting. Actually, I think this was a NIDA. This was sports with, oh no, I I just Googled this. This is sports with the most number of anti-doping violations in 2015. And it kind of breaks them down by sport. So because I fancy myself as a little bit of a weekend warrior. I'm interested in who's doing this. I think you're and a it, little bit more than a weekend was, warrior, Paula. Well, <laughs> you're I, on I do, which Iron Man now? <laughs> yeah. So it looks like bodybuilders take up the, the biggest chunk of the pie with general athletics right after that. And I think athletics refers to traditional definition of athletics, which is like track and field, which would make sense, right? Remember the whole controversy with Marion Jones, the US sprinter and anabolic steroids. And then weightlifters come shortly behind athletic athletes athletes. And then of course, good old cycling. We could have a whole episode just on sports doping. And of course, Lance Armstrong kind of brought the whole roof down with cycling about doping. But other ones that feature are powerlifting, football, rugby, boxing, wrestling, and basketball. I don't know. I think that's interesting. They, the largest category they have is just the other. Oh, other. The lar- yeah. The largest chunk, which I think is emphasizing to not miss those patients with like you talked about, Paula, just the body dysmorphia. Absolutely. Yeah. It's And also I think just like cannabis and some of the other things we've talked about on the podcast, there's a, a decreased perception of harm for these chemicals. And so a lot of times, especially in certain gym cultures, the use of anabolics or performance enhancers or image enhancers is just routine. It's, it's not considered drug use. It's just considered part of the process to like look your best. And this even includes pre-workout, right? You can get all kinds of crazy stuff and pre-workouts, which, you know, goes to say that anabolic steroid users report using an average of about 11 different performance enhancing drugs a year. And they're much more likely to, to use supplements. And I this is I had to chuckle when I saw this because I found that a lot of my folk who use anabolics or have used anabolics in the past, they're the ones who come to me in a residential setting or in an inpatient setting, and they have a whole bag full of goodies, you know, protein powders, BCAAs, creatine, and then they have other things that they want or that they're on, including estrogen blockers or other ephedrine type product. And then of course, they often seek erectile disorder 
function meds, and maybe even the extreme, they go to seek things like insulin or thyroid hormone or human growth hormone to to enhance their their performance. Have you seen that as well? Oh, yes. And we talked about this a little bit, I think, off air. But even people in recovery, because exercise is a common, accepted and encouraged by us form of recovery and treatment, our patients are very vulnerable that they fall into this culture very easily. I think this is why something to be aware of, even if they weren't doing this before, and then you get patients that get into this gym and they very easily can fall into this and they don't even consider it a problem. I am the biggest proponent of movement and exercise as a as a wonderful path to recovery. I think a lot of people discover physical fitness and movement and exercise when they're seeking recovery from addiction and they discover that this is something they loved when they were a child. They get back into a childhood sport or activity or they find community in a sober gym and that's really positive and reinforcing. And there's some amazing data available for the power of exercise and you know recovery from substance use disorder. But we do have to be careful for people who get sucked into kind of a extreme, you know, the extreme circumstances, that's for sure. So making sure that they understand the risk and that they're not susceptible to cross addiction. And uh, we're going to have Dr. Beth Howell on the podcast soon talking about kind of cross addiction and the risk of going from one substance to another or one activity and behavior to another. That's that's also leads to use in spite of negative consequences. Are people abusing? When we say steroids, that's a big class. We're going to try to go through the most common. I'm going to break them down into about maybe it was five groups. Classically, what we think of as the androgens are veterinary steroids, are trenbolone and boldenone. Among elite athletes, you get what they call the androgenic steroids and the anabolic androgenic steroids. And this comes from up to date. They are typically synthetic androgens. Get some of the oral ones such as stanozolol or parenteal such as nandrolone. There are some androgen precursors as well. Most common that was known as like andro and And then when that was available up until 2004, when it became a controlled substance, so they're not typically going to be, again, they're still illicit use, but that's not something that's going to be available over the counter. Did I say this? So our exogenous testosterone includes our, what we prescribe our testosterone esters, including the ethanate and the cypionate. DHEA is available as a nutritional supplement, and this is all over the place in bodybuilding magazines. And it's it's kind of interesting. It's not androgenic itself, but it's converted to testosterone and raises serum concentrations in women, but not men. But we see male and female users. Then this most common of the supplements that you see is the selective androgen receptor modulators or SARMs. These are non-steroidal orally active molecules that are developed to bind better to androgen. This is probably the most prolific of the supplements. There's probably 40 plus of these out there on the internet. I mean, too many to really go into, but that's probably one of the most popular when you have patients kind of tell you that, well, they're taking a testosterone booster and those things still not not recommended, but that's what that's usually what they're getting into. And then we get into your estrogen blockers and then our aromatase inhibitors. So we're getting into our anti-estrogen medications. So your clomiphene and your tamoxifen. These have estrogen agonist properties 
studies. And frequently, this is where patients are coming to you to get a prescription. And we'll use this under the guise that they've quit using, they're wanting some help. It's not recommended. And I read this in multiple papers. It is not recommended that you prescribe an antiestrogen. This is just typically patients are wanting to continue using and they want, they're trying to block some of the harmful effects of the steroid that they're abusing. The aromatase inhibitors, similar reason while they'll use the aromatase inhibitors, it blocks the conversion of androgen to estrogen. And so that's your letrozole and your anastrozole. Although they can, they're not very effective, but what you're trying to do is reduce the development of the gynecomastia. In lay terms, that is the man breasts. That is the consequence of the anabolic steroid abuse. Also an attempt to elevate their serum testosterone concentration. So this is another one where you will have patients coming and trying to get inappropriate prescriptions. Mm, Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm really glad you broke that down because in the past, I've definitely been a bit confused as to why people come in on clomiphene or, you know, what the actual purpose of DEH, DHEA is, and also what these androgen precursors do. And I'm trying to educate folks, you know, all the time about not using pre-workout or pre you know, testosterone boosters. And I, I this is good to be more educated on actually what they are and how they work. What about common patterns for using? Because I think this is important for health providers to understand how people misuse steroids so that we can talk in their language and find out what their typical method of use is. It also helps us understand what their risk is for certain adverse effects. Common patterns for use, Darlene, do you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. We have the terms, I think we hear them, the cycling stacking, pyramiding, plateauing. But what does that really mean? So you have the cycling and that can sometimes be probably what the most common are doing. And they and this can have varying lengths of time, but this is just taking multiple doses for a period of time, stopping for a time and then restarting, basically cycling. Yeah. And that's, I agree. That's what I hear the most too. People cycle on and off and they have very elaborate cycles and it's, it's all laid out, you know, how to take this dose for this many days, this many weeks and this combination, et cetera. Yep. It's to try to mitigate some of these side effects, like you said, elaborate regimens so they can get maximal effects, but it's also, we'll get into some of the adverse effects, but it's trying to reduce some of those adverse effects. Stacking is combining two or more different steroids and mixing oral and or injectable types. So that one you can just remember, just think when you're stacking, you've got two things. So you're putting one on top of another and and or you're mixing. So you may have oral and injectable. And that can be, again, we start thinking about, we can get into some really dangerous levels. Pyramiding is slowly increasing the dose or frequency of steroid misuse till they reach kind of a peak amount. And then they gradually tapering off to zero because there can be, a there is a withdrawal syndrome. And so they're trying to, this is when they can get up to sometimes really high dose and they're trying to mit- supposedly mitigate that a little bit. Yeah, and, then, and you know, I think we see pyramiding 
pyramiding quite a lot too. I think probably pyramiding and cycling can often just be the same, not technically the same thing, but the same thing, uh, because most of the time the cycle will include a taper. So yes. build up to make sure they get to a dose that they can tolerate and that doesn't cause them to feel super irritable or give them tons of acne. And then they'll taper down rather than just stopping at 200 milligrams twice a week or yes. three times a week or something like that. Towing is alternating, overlapping or substituting with another steroid to avoid developing a tolerance. And so that's just, they're just, it, it's kind of usually combined with one of uh, these others, but they're just, you're kind of like just substituting. So they're definitely probably the closest to stacking because you're using other substances. Right. And, you know, interesting that a lot of times these are taken in doses that are 10 to 100 times higher than the doses we prescribe. So for just for hypogonadism that we're replacing in the office, in the clinic, people are using extreme doses typically. Yes. Talk about that. What is the route? This is where you have oral, you have IM, topical gels or creams. And like you said, 10 to 100 times higher, which is crazy. No wonder why when we get into some of these side effects. Okay, misuse of anabolic steroids leads to several negative mental health effects. And some of them are paranoia. And this can be extreme, extreme irritability and aggression, what we call in our society, roid rage, delusions, false beliefs or ideas, impaired judgment. I think we see this frequently and mania and think about this when you already have someone who already has a predisposition with another mental health disorder. Aside from the mental health effects, common side effects is severe acne, swelling, particularly in the hands and the feet, not to mention the what we expect the gynecomastia, you get the testes shrinking. Those are the effects that they're trying to mitigate. You get obviously increased male pattern baldness. All right, some more of the long-term effects, Paula. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely long-term effects for people too. Maybe not even a long-term effect, but another thing that you see pretty quickly in some patients is elevated liver function enzymes. And they can be extreme. I had a patient who was, he was an athletic guy. He was actually used to be a pro athlete, now was coaching football for his son's football team, uh, worked in addition to being a coach as a personal trainer, he had really elevated LFTs like in the 900, I mean, I guess it's all relative, but he had elevated LFTs in the 900 to 1200 range. And for the first few kind of weeks of trying to figure this out with him, I don't know why he had that. I mean, I was trying, was talking to him about, well, you know, working him up. And finally, we went, got to the topic of steroid use, and he had been injecting testosterone for months, actually probably years, and he had extreme liver, you know, effects from that. And so long-term effect, definitely liver damage. And there's a particular kind of cyst that you can develop in the liver. It's called paleosis hepatis, and they're blood-filled cysts that are a direct correlation to anabolic steroid use. And they're dangerous because they can rupture, and then you have hemorrhage. That's a really interesting condition. Yeah, this is, I, ha- yeah. I mean, I had not heard of this. And as I was researching this, or maybe we I, maybe we learned about this when we first took our boards, but it was just researching that I'm like, this is a really bad thing to get. <laughs> True. <laughs> You're thinking blood filled sacs that can rupture anytime in your liver. In, like, uh, in this weight, is bad. In- 
weightlifters who yes. are valsalvaing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, contact no sports. <laughs> yes, like football or rugby. Yeah, right. Or or um wrestling. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you can also see kidney damage from excess anabolic steroid use and some of the other performance enhancers. You can definitely see cardiomyopathy and hypertension as well as um elevated blood, excuse me, elevated cholesterol. I think you see an increase in LDL. So if you have all those things in combination, hypertension, elevated lipids, cardiomyopathy, you increase the risk, obviously, of heart attack, heart disease, and stroke, even in younger people. There's also an increased risk of thromboembolism, uh, VTEs, right? Because of the hormone, the sex hormone effect on on coagulation. Um, Particularly in men, you see shrinking uh, testes. I use this often as a deterrent for my teenagers and my young athletes. I'm like, try and educate them about some of the side effects of steroid use. And I say, your testicles will get smaller. And they're, you know, it's not something they want, basically. Uh, Obviously, decreased sperm count. There's a lot to be said about infertility as a result of long-term steroid use. And I don't think that's really known all that well, that this really can affect fertility and it can affect fertility long-term. People can develop gynecomastia. So we talked a little bit about how they try and avert that by using the aromatase inhibitors or the SARMs. And there's also an increased risk for prostate cancer, which is much like when we are using clinical exogenous testosterone replacement for hypogonadism. All those risks um, are true for people who are using it um, illicitly too, right? In women, you see facial hair growth and excessive body hair. And I mean, this is kind of sad, but you know, several of the Olympic games over the years, we've had certain teams that have shown up and blown every other country out of the water, literally like swimming a couple of years ago, Chinese team. And the women show up to the starting block and they're, they've got lots of facial hair and body hair. And you just wonder, oh man, what's going on there? Dec- which is, I mean, obviously some people are like that, but it's just the way their body is, which is fine. But this is in increase in hair growth, decrease in breast size, male pattern baldness for women. And then of course, some women can stop um, or have a change in their menstrual cycle and they have an enlarged clitoris and a deepened voice. So kind of all of the things that people might use to do transitioning for transgendering, you see those effects if you use anabolic steroids for performance or image enhancing. And particularly interesting for teenagers, you do see stunted growth because you get bone growth plate Uh, premature closing with with high levels of sex hormone. The long-term effects of anabolic steroid use, we didn't really talk specifically about long-term effects of some of the other performance enhancers like growth hormone or insulin or um, some of the others, but this is particularly true for anabolic steroids. Yeah. I mean, that could almost be a whole other topic too. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. And you mentioned as well that you, that one of the, I mean, one of the effects that we can't forget is withdrawal. So people who use steroids experience withdrawal symptoms when they stop using, right? What do they, what do we typically see? There's definitely a syndrome and you're seeing fatigue, the restlessness, decreased appetite, sleep problems, a decreased libido or sex drive, steroid cravings. Really interesting is there's a couple of papers and, but they found that some steroid users then turn to other drugs such as opiates to reduce some of their sleep problems problems and irritability. And so that's where this we see this and that's why kind of either co-use 
or I was using steroids and then tried to get off of that. And boy, did I find something even better, you know, which is terrible. Right. Yeah, definitely. And then Paula, tell us about the treatment because this is tricky. People statistically do not come to physicians for treatment. Right. And, you know, this is this kind of, you know, we talked about this at the beginning, but use of anabolic steroids or performance enhancing drugs in some people results in a true use disorder where people actually end up having withdrawal, they have tolerance, and they have uh, cravings, they they have perseveration, they have compulsive use, they have use, continued use in spite of negative consequences. So all of those things sound just like a substance use disorder for any other substance, right? And we know that the research with human cells show that that these anabolic steroids interact with certain kinds of cells in the brain that are involved in brain reward, such as GABA and serotonin and dopamine. So not only is this, are the substances themselves rewarding to some people, but I think the ritual becomes very important to some people, the ritual, the control, and then the positive reinforcement of the body, which is really interesting. Sorry, this is not talking about treatment yet, but I'm getting there. And this is where eating disorders and body dysmorphia and abuse of image enhancing drugs or anabolics for performance enhancement, as well as things that are commonly used for extreme for weight loss, like laxatives or diet pills, they fall into a different and an unusual category of substances that need to be treated because in and of themselves, they end up with some social positivity, right? People don't always say, oh man, you look great now that you're using opioids all the time. Look at all this positive stuff that's coming out of your crack use. Like that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. But when people are that using is so true. Perf- yeah, when people are using performance enhancing drugs or image enhancing drugs, they're getting you know, a gold get, medal. Exactly. You get a gold medal. People say how ripped you are, how wonderful you look. You yourself have increased self-confidence. I mean maybe or maybe not. Remembering that this particular group of people are more prone to low self-esteem, body dysmorphic, disordered thinking, anxiety. And so it's very hard to break that cycle when society rewards the very thing that this behavior leads to. So I think treatment for this is slightly different. And this is where we kind of bump up against the eating disorder treatment world. And we need to learn a lot from them in terms of what really needs to change. And that's the root cause of what's happening and what's driving people to use performance enhancers, image enhancing drugs. And I don't know if medical providers feel that comfortable doing that. I don't think we're trained to do that. But understanding that going back and looking at psychological psychological therapies like CBT and DBT and other cognitive and and group therapies for this kind of thing are helpful. And possibly even medications can be helpful. We know that when we treat, there's no FDA approved medications, right, for eating disorder or body dysmorphia. But if we treat dysregulated serotonin levels, people improve their self-image and their body image. And also kind of like the OCD spectrum, when we treat extreme anxiety and compulsive thinking with SSRIs or other other um, SNRIs people resolve some of that compulsive, the obsessive thinking and compulsive behavior such as, you know, extreme picking of their skin or trichotillomania. So I'm kind of all over the place there, but just thinking about the way we need to approach it is highly psychiatric and psychological and lifestyle, like debunking the societal myths of what is aesthetically pleasing and what's not and what you can and can't do with your body without 
steroids. And this is very controversial in the in the professional athletic world now because there's doping is still illegal and yet it seems to be done pervasively. There's an amazing article that came out just before the last Olympics. Let's see if they were estimating that between 10 and 40% of the athletes that were showing up. Oh, this was from The Economist. Here you go. So The Economist said that between 10 and 40% of the athletes in Tokyo were likely doping. I mean, that's okay. So 10% is probably kind of low, but still one in 10 athletes that are eligible to win an international recognize, you know, recognized medal for to 40% of the athletes. There's kind of all of those social, you know, sports social norms that people are expected to be to a certain level. In terms of treatment, I think it's highly, well, one, we have to know that it's happening. We need to screen for it and talk about it and understand what our patients are doing. Two, we need to advise people. So the whole ask, advise, assist, you know, the whole A's that we use in family medicine, advise them that there are definite risks associated with steroid use or these other um, performance drugs, and then assist them in stopping and using motivational interviewing to lever people's motivation to maybe not use or not use as much or use in a less risky way. And there are things that you can do to support people if they're really struggling with the transition from using these drugs to not, right? Right. And I think this is really interesting. And maybe you already said this, Paula, at the beginning is 50 56% of users never told their, their physician about use. Really? That is fascinating. So and that makes sense. In fact, I, I would imagine it's even I would have thought it would have been higher than that. Yes, absolutely. And in addition to that, most of these internet sites devoted to anabolic steroid use and other APEDs challenge the professionalism of healthcare providers, and they offer their own medically questionable advice on the use of APEDs. So you've got your work cut out for you. So that's why it's so important that we have enough education, number one, to recognize it, like what we're learning today, know the signs and the symptoms, and then be able to know how to treat it and be able to be able to, to talk openly with your patients because the the information they're getting out there basically says their doctor doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, that's really what what your patients are being told. And that's so interesting. Plus they're paranoid and and delusional because of their use. But how often have, I've seen that. That is so interesting that you just said that because I I often have encountered uh, patients who are well-versed in cycling or stacking or pyramiding anabolic. And man, they are the experts, right? And, And of course they are. I mean, you're the expert of your own body and However, it's really interesting. There's this um, kind of notion of, how can I describe it? Like entitlement, like I know what I need and you need to give it to me. You know, I need this. You need to prescribe this to me. I need this um, estrogen blocker. And I think sometimes they bully, some, some providers may be bullied into prescribing things that they don't really understand as harm because we don't understand and because the users have this whole culture of what's good, what works, what doesn't work. And and they are aware of the risks, I think, but I don't know if each individual person is truly informed. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing on just treatment, and you brought up the like pharmacological and treatment, but suicide risk is incredibly high. It was, I'm trying to find that statistic, Paula. It was something like 
was it two to four times higher than I can't remember if it was in was it just in with the withdrawal period or just two to four times higher than in the general population. It is so important that you are screening these patients in particular for suicide risk. Yes. And getting them appropriate treatment and treat depression. Treat it with CBT. Treat it with SSRIs when appropriate. Make sure that we are treating it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a great point. I love that you reminded us for that always to, I mean, all of our patients, anyone involved in addiction medicine, but especially this group. Okay. Well, I think the most important thing is recognizing the symptoms in the signs in your patient. So what do you, what is the main thing to look for? Number one, it's ask. And like you said, Paula, you have to ask specifically because your patients, it's very normal to them. And so they don't report it to you because they don't consider abuse. We just have to ask, be aware of what the symptoms are and be aware of the withdrawal signs to educate our patients and offer treatment and be aware of the mental health effects and be and treat appropriately. Yes. Okay. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.